My name is Jeff Lehman, and I'm a family physician. And my wife and I, Janet, in the back row there, um, have uh, live in Peoria, Illinois. We spent nine years in North India working with Emanuel Hospital Association, and uh, and we've been back in the states for about ten years now for family issues and parents. So um, yeah, so that's kind of our background, um, and we're going to start. So this is a cool quote, but a lot of people debate whether Hippocrates ever said it, but it looked cool, so I put it in my talk here. But there is a lot of truth to this, and that's some of the things that we're going to talk about today. One disclaimer, I don't think food can fix everything. I'm a doctor, and I prescribe lots of medicine. And so uh, you know, I think that there are some people who take this topic to the extreme, and I'm not one of them. So some objectives that we're going to cover today, what do I want to get to, is that I actually believe that there is evidence and strong evidence that the right food can not only prevent but actually reverse disease. And I'm talking about mostly chronic disease that we face in the United States. Obviously not all disease, and obviously it's not a perfect formula. We live in a fallen world with fallen bodies. And so uh, this should never be like, oh, I eat really healthy and I exercise and I don't smoke, but I still have hypertension. That's the fallen world we live in. But we also want to appraise kind of some current uh, nutritional controversies and look at the data. I want to think a little bit through this. Um, I would love to have more data from global. There just is not a ton of data on uh, global data on this, and so we're going to stop every little bit and try to extrapolate. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Western diet, uh, the SAD diet, the standard American diet, has actually permeated most of the world, and obesity rates that are climbing around the world are great, greatly due to our exports. And then just to think about as a matter of stewardship how this affects us personally. So here are some disclaimers. Nutritional studies can be really challenging, and there's a lot of confounders. I'm not a nutritional expert. I just read the literature a lot, and this is something that I'm very passionate about. And I'm passionate about it because a couple of things. When I lived in India in a rural village, we hardly ever saw poor village people struggling with the Western diseases. But those Western diseases are exploding in India right now. I think about 10 years ago, a, a, a medical student came, or a, a resident came and started in our program here, and she was just blown away. Actually, she was from Pakistan and from a rural, rural area, and she said, she was just dumbfounded. She said, oh, in Pakistan, disease kills people. Here, people just kill themselves. And so there is some talk, uh, truth to that. Uh, not all true. Uh, but one other thing, this is a terrible lecture. If I saw any of my le- residents give this lecture, I would give them an F because there's so much information and there's not enough time and there's too many words on the slides, and I know that, and I'm sorry. Um, so a lot of trouble with the uh, nutritional studies is that you put people in groups, but you don't know whether they really adhere to it, so it makes interpreting them hard. But we're going to be talking about low-hanging fruit here. Okay? There are a lot of experts And I bet you there's lots of experts in this room. Whenever you give a talk on food as medicine, half the room is full of people who show up who already believe that and have their own strongly held opinions about it. Uh, So um, I'm crying about that because many of you probably know more about this than I do. But we're not going to get into talks about a specific vitamin. We're not going to get into talks about lectin or some kind of micronutrient because I think that those things have such a small relative impact to the things we're going to talk about today. And there are lots of books, so we're not talking about any books here. I'm just looking at scientifically published studies in the literature. Okay, and most importantly, this is an issue of stewardship, not only for our own selves, our body, and our health, and for our patients, but this is not something that we mean to turn into an idol. 
You know, I meet people who this is so important to, they won't ever break bread with their friends because the right kind of food's not on the table. I'm not advocating that either. Okay, so this is the main reason why we're starting off here, to think about what percentage of diseases in the Western world could be prevented by lifestyle modifications. And we're not talking about crazy things here. We're talking about a high-fiber, low-fat diet, walking 30 minutes a day, don't smoke, and don't be obese. What kind of impact do you think that, that would have? Those numbers are numbers. But if you work in healthcare and you see the amputations and the dialysis and the heart attacks and the cabbages and the neuropathy, uh, these numbers are ginormous and the financial health impact of that is ginormous and that makes this topic important. It's not 100% like we talked about before with hypertension, but it's a lot. Uh, just really quick, we won't spend a ton of time on this. One out of every four people in the United States dies of a heart attack. $818 billion is the projected cost of this, plus lost revenue of $275 billion, $1 trillion impact just from cardiovascular disease. If you come up to me afterwards, I'll give you the slides because there's way more than we're going to read on here. Okay, and so this is something just to think about. This has happened in relatively, if you have gray hair in here, you've seen this happen in our country. And if you don't have to have gray hair to see this happening in our world. These are some really tremendous slides that come from our um, government. And so I want to think about yellow is, um, is diabetes, purple is obesity, and then you can see down here in the dark blue where they oversect, that's where you have obesity and hypertension. And these are county data in the United States, 2004, 2010, 2016. And next year we get the data coming out for 2020. And with the pandemic and the data that we're getting from the pandemic, especially with children, these numbers are going to look way, way worse than this. And it's a global burden problem too, right? Uh, so these are number of diabetics numbered in the millions in the world from 1980, when I was in high school, uh, until this is only 2014. And there's no new data graphs of this out yet, uh, but they got delayed. The production of this got delayed by the pandemic. But you can guess at these numbers. The orange countries are countries that I care deeply about, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and East Asia. But you can just look at the explosion of number of diabetics in those parts of the world. And then look at Africa. So blue is zero incidence almost of diabetes. Look at Africa in 1980. Look at Africa now, especially North Africa. And we think about, oh, that's lots of diabetes, but we look at the cost of taking care of these patients for countries that do not have the resources to take care of chronic illness. So think about the United States. The projected cost by 2040 will be $340 billion a year to care for diabetes alone. Now, there's going to be a lot of diabetics in Africa, and their projected cost of covering that is about $6 billion, but $6 billion in Africa is a whole lot of money. And it's not just diabetes and heart disease and uh, but it's also cancer. And so this study was a great study that was published in Lancet's Diabetic Endocrinology looking at cancers that's attributable to diabetes. Oh, this doesn't work up there. Uh, cancer that's attributable to high blood pressure. And then when you combine them, there's a conservative and an independent an estimate here. And the, and the salmon color all the way to the left is South Asia. And right next to it, you can't really see from where you are, is Sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe. And so you can see that a lot of cancer comes from this as well. So we're not just talking about diabetes and hypertension. So I think Mark Twain was wrong. Uh, Mark Twain thought the only way to keep your health is eat what you don't want and drink what you don't like and do what you'd rather not. I think that that probably doesn't have to be true. So we're going to start talking about macronutrients here and, so, um, and kind of wade through some of the confusion on that. So 
all my fonts wouldn't save today and I had to change them all. Somehow 20th century font all of a sudden as of this week won't save in Microsoft Office. So that's why some of these slides are wonky. So this is a really high popular diet. I've tried it myself in a way to lose weight. High fat, low protein diet. It's really fun. You get to eat steak and bacon every day and for somehow you do lose weight for a while. Um, but we know that this is not good for you and we know that it may accelerate atherosclerotic disease um, and it may not be related to any of the cardiovascular risk factors that we know. We know that if you take mice and you feed them this diet, they have twice the level of arterial plaque formation. They don't have any ability to generate new blood vessels when their current blood vessels get blocked off. Um, there's a great study published in the spring of this year when you took young, healthy women and you put them on a keto diet, high-protein, low-fat diet. Uh, they had dramatic increases in their LDL, which is bad cholesterol, and the lipoprotein B100, which is a very pro-inflammatory uh, cholesterol subparticle. I put a little red asterisk there because those things are associated with heart disease. We don't know that they're causative. And the sustainability of these diets is very poor. So I'll have a guy come in and say, oh, I've been drinking bourbon and eating bacon and I lost 100 pounds. And in a year, he'll have gained 80 or 90 of that back. Um, so the bottom line is, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So here's the deal with carbs, right? Everyone talks about low carbs. Um, but actually, from a really well-published meta-analysis in Lancet, you can see that actually carb consumption is a U-shaped curve. So this is if you eat less than 40% of your energy is from carbohydrates. This is the hazard rate of dying. If you eat more than 80% of your carbohydrates, or 60 is kind of the sweet spot where it's low there, the mortality starts to go up too. But the thing is, it's not all equal. So let's say your carbs are less than 40% and you replace them mostly, because you've got to replace them with either a fat or a protein, right? And if you replace them with animal fats and proteins, your risk is much, much higher. If you replace them with plants, it goes significantly less, but still not nothing. So carbohydrates are important. They're our main source of fuel, uh, and so the other part of these high-protein diets is just high-protein in and of itself, especially animal protein, is really, really heavily tied to dying. So they looked at if you if your protein intake was more than 20% of your diet and you were in the age of the 50 to 65 range that I'm in, uh, your mortality increased prematurely by 74%, cancer deaths by 400%. The interesting thing was, is that if that was all plant protein you're eating, those numbers came down to zero. And so uh, animal protein can be a problem. Now, we're going to get to this later. I love steak and I eat chicken. Um, sugar intake and cardiovascular disease. This is a really sad statistic. One out of 10 of us gets 10% of our daily calories from sugar. That's about twice the maximum recommended amount. And one, I'm sorry, that's... The average American is 10%. One out of 10 Americans gets 25% of their caloric intake a day from sugar. Now, a 15-year study that's texted there at the bottom, it was in JAMA Internal Medicine, said that you are twice as likely to die from heart disease just from sugar. Now, we don't think about, we think about cholesterol and heart disease, but sugar is very, very tied to dying early. Even if you're eating a lot of other stuff that you're eating is, is healthy food. So the added sugars to our diet are very dangerous and bad. So I want to make you think of a different way to think about carbohydrates. When I was a kid, it was simple, complex. And then I went to low glycemic index, high glycemic index. There's some value to that, but I don't know that you can look at a food and think, ah, oh, what's the high glycemic index of this? So now people are starting to use, for simplification, high quality and low quality carbohydrates. 
low-quality carbohydrates doesn't mean that they don't taste good or that they're, you can still eat them, but they don't have very much nutritional value. Those are things like sugar, refined grains, and starcy vegetables. So think all the things on that list that you all like. Soft drinks, cake, cookie, donuts, syrups, white potatoes, breakfast cereals. 42% of all calories in the American diet come from low-quality carbohydrates. Only 9% come from high-quality carbohydrates. That's whole fruit, fibrous vegetables, whole grains. The good news is there might be some room improvement in the last five years by 3%. Um, but it's so easy. I'm going to just tell you something. I struggle a lot with this. So this is simple, but it's hard. So looking at the carbohydrate quality in human health, this was a tremendous paper published also in Lancet. They publish a lot of great stuff on literature. 135 million person years of data from 185 prospective studies. And what they did after they did that, they broke people into quintiles of the highest pro fiber intake with their, cal their carbohydrates down to the lowest. And if you compare the highest quintile of carbohydrate, in I mean the fiber intake, uh, to the lowest, this is what happens. You, just from those two categories, there's a 30% difference in all cause in cardiovascular mortality. That's like people dying. Um, and a decrease of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, just by adding fibrous, high-fiber carbohydrates to your diet. For every 1,000 participants, that was 13 fewer deaths and six fewer cases of coronary heart disease. Remember that the deaths are more than heart disease. They're from diabetes, diabetic complications, and cancer. So if you live in Louisville, that means every year an extra 8,000 people are dying and another 3,700 3, people are having heart attacks and strokes because of eating low-quality, low-fiber carbohydrates in their diet. And so this is just a graph showing fiber intake and type 2 diabetes mellitus in the last corner, colorectal cancer, uh, all-cause mortality, and then there's some controversy about cardiovascular disease. The more fiber you eat for every 8 grams of increased fiber. So what is 8 grams of increased fiber? That's like one and a half pears. That's a cup of raspberries. By every amount of that fiber you eat in a day, you can see that 7% reduction in death, 8% reduction in colorectal cancer, 15% reduction in type 2 diabetes. Their target is 25 or 30 is ideal. Only about 10 to 15% of Americans consume that much fiber. And so, um, and it's interesting, in this thing, fiber and whole grains had way more of an impact than even higher low glycemic index carbohydrates. So this is fruit consumption. And I always cringe when I hear diabetic doctors telling their patients not to take, not to eat fruit. I think that that's crazy because this is a graph. If you look down here, this is blood glucose and systemic blood sugar based on never or rarely monthly intake of fruit, one to three servings a day or one to three servings a week, four to five, six servings a week and daily. And this is blood glucose, systemic blood pressure, risk of stroke, risk of cardiovascular death and risk of coronary events. So fruit is still important. It has sugar in it, but it's still healthy for you. So this is fun. She's reading the paper that says an average American went up to five pounds during the lockdown. Uh, yeah, that was lots of us. So we're going to skip from carbs to fat. Fat is not bad. All fat is not bad. Uh, so here's a graph. If you, back, if you were alive back in the 80s when the dietary recommendations came to everyone should be eating low-fat diets, that's this arrow. And this orange line is obesity. This green line is extreme obesity. And these lines are sugar consumption and wheat consumption per capita after people instituted low fat. I mean, if you can't eat fat, what are you going to eat? You've got to eat something else, right? And those things are cheap. 
So the low-fat dietary recommendations actually cause the creation of disease and explosion in this country, or at least we're associated with it. There are many studies. The Mediterranean diet we're going to come to is very high in the right kind of fats. A uh, very famous seven-country study from the 50s showed that there was no correlation between the, a type, or the amount of fat in the diet and heart disease. And actually, Crete, which has some of the lowest rates of heart disease in the world, have some of the highest fat intakes. The problem is, what kind of fat are you eating? Right? Is it plant-based fat or is it animal fats? So fats to avoid, I think you all know this, fried foods, trans fats are terrible. We've banned them in a lot of places in the United States, but unfortunately, those countries that produce those foods that are full of trans fats uh, can still make them and have found markets all around the world, especially in developing countries. And then the last thing that's a huge problem in the developing world, and it certainly was in India, oil is expensive. And so families that use oil to cook in their houses, uh, at least in India and Pakistan where I know about, they will use it and use it and use it and use it and use it. And every time you use it, uh, you are causing oxidative regeneration, which is, just becomes very, very carcinogenic and thrombogenic in, uh, for, for uh, problems related to cardiovascular disease. So this is something to think about uh, if you're working in a resource-limited setting where people use a lot of cooking oil. This is Santa Claus in New York City. The kids said, wow, banning trans fats had an impact. Um, so the other thing, though, that we talked about fats. So you can think about animal fats or you can think about plant fats, but there's kind of a different way to think about this, and that is omega-6 fatty acids, largely in gra grain-fed meat. Uh, but if you think about meat like deer, uh, venison, grass-fed beef, that uh, ratio changes quite a bit, and there's a lot more um, uh, in grass-fed animals, higher ratios of omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-6 fatty acids are important for us, but most research diets show, like the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, show that that ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 should be at least one and a half or two to one. And we'll come to that a little bit when we think about what kind of fats people are eating. So what about olive oil? Um, 32 studies uh, in one meta-analysis. The more you ate, the less your all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and strokes. I'm going to skip down to the bottom one here, the PREDIMED trial that many of you are aware of. If you have any interest in um, nutrition, it was in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2013. And they had people who were at high risk to develop heart disease, and they put them in three arms, and one of the arms drank a liter of olive oil a week or consumed a liter of olive oil a week, they actually had a 30% reduction in their primary endpoint, which was MI, stroke, or death. Uh, and so it's clearly that fat intake in and of itself is not bad. It's what kind of fats they are. And then we get into processed foods. Very interesting trial uh, for two, or I mean, yeah, this was actually two years. I didn't put that on here. So they took six, they found a bunch of guys and they said, hey, don't eat these six groups of food margarine, butter, processed vegetable oils, cream, processed meats, and sugar-sweetened drinks. At the end of that time, they had almost no contact. 51% said, yeah, I was really adherent to that diet. Of those 51% who were adherent to that diet, 56% of them had weight loss greater than 5%, and their A1C, if they were diabetic, was down. There were no calorie restrictions, nothing else. They were just told to avoid these groups. In fact, the people who completed were more likely to eat more bread, dairy, chocolate, and fresh fruits uh, than the other group was. And so this just tells you, even though you probably shouldn't, you know, just go crazy with some of those other things, processed foods are bad for us. 
Oh, boy. Uh, this is where I want the gray shield in front of me to protect me from flying objects. So most of my friends who are trying to get away from sugar and eating healthy go to diet beverages. The problem is there is no evidence, not one shred of evidence, that drinking diet soda is effective for weight loss. In fact, this study in 2008 showed that one serving a day increased your risk of metabolic syndrome by between 20 to 30 percent. A 2009 trial showed that it increased your hazard ratio, so 36% increase for metabolic syndrome and a 67% increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes from drinking diet soda. Uh, in the review of the literature done in 2013, excessive weight gain, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and melanoma and cardiovascular disease. It's worse for you than regular soda. So this is a 2019 study, if you don't believe me. It looked at compared women who said they drink less than one diet soda drink versus people who drank two a day, and they compared those two groups. The people who drank more than two Diet Cokes a day had a 31% chance of more increased risk of a, heart, a stroke, 29% of a heart attack, and 16% of just dying more from any cause when you compared them to the group that drank less than one a week. And so there's a lot of other studies, risk of diabetes. They all say about the same thing, two to three times risk increase uh, from drinking Diet Soda compared to other sweetened beverages. This was just published in 2019. This looked at uh, quality of consumption of soda. So this is, if you're used to reading forest plots, the farther it is from this line, the more likely you are to die. This is all soft drinks. This is sugar-sweetened soft drinks. And this is artificially flavored soft drinks. Which of those two categories is farther from the line? Artificially sweetened beverages. They're not good for you. But I'll throw you a bone. Chocolate is. <laughs> so, uh, so this was actually a really nice systematic review and meta-analysis in Heart, in the Journal of Heart. And uh, the right amount, we'll get to that in a second, what that is, decreased cardiovascular risk, decreased MI, decreased stroke. I say, well, it's kind of a vegetable, right? It comes from a bean. Uh, the problem is, is that it's about 45 grams a week is the sweet spot. That's a candy bar about that big once a week or broken up in little pieces through the week. So chocolate is actually a good thing for you if it doesn't have a bunch of added junk to it. So we've kind of talked about protein. We've talked about fat. We've talked about carbohydrates. Now I'm just going to start thinking about those big categories tied not only to disease uh, prevention, but also to talk about can we start reversing disease. If you guys are familiar with this, this is a great trial done, the Blue Zone Diet. And what they did was they looked at five areas of the world where people live to be extraordinarily long and healthy lives. And those are the five areas you had here. It was the Seventh-day Adventist in Loma Linda, California, uh, Costa Rica, a village in Italy, Greece, and Okinawa, Japan. And they thought, what are the things that are in common between these areas of the world where people are easily living to 90 or 100 years old? And so they did this Venn diagram, and we're just going to focus on what's in the middle, in the very middle that all three of these areas had in common. Family, not smoking, eating most of your protein and fats from plants, constant moderate physical exercise, social engagement, and then the food group that's in here is legumes. And I'll, we'll talk about what legumes are in a second if that word's not familiar with you. Uh, but yeah, so... If we look at dietary guidelines and eating patterns in the United States, there are three real ones that are described in the literature. Uh, one is kind of, if you're familiar with DASH diet, it's called the U.S. style eating pattern, but it's really the DASH diet, a Mediterranean diet, and then the vegetarian diet. So 
I'm going to get, I'm in trouble here too. We're doing Diet Coke and now here I'm in Louisville talking about a Southern diet. So the Southern diet is really high in added fats, fried food, eggs, organ meats, sugar, sweet, sweet tea. And um, you can see there the data, a 56% increase of less than even six years of heart cardi- cardiovascular events, 50% increase in mortality. This is compared to people who eat a primary Southern diet to people who eat a DASH diet. That's a lot. And if you don't believe that, here's a picture of the United States, the risk of cardiovascular risk disease. The darker the red, the higher the cardiovascular mortality. This is very sad. Because if you live and work in these areas, there are families just stuck in patterns of behavior that they do not know how to break. And their families are dying from hip kidney disease and heart attacks. And this is a massive problem. And it's usually the poor that struggle the most from this. So that DASH diet, um, this is kind of repeating the same thing, right? The higher the trans fats, the increased mortality. All sources of animal protein were noted to increase your all-cause mortality relative to vegetable protein. We're going to get to this in a second. I'm not, I eat meat. So the Mediterranean diet. So people think, so this is kind of a picture of the Mediterranean diet. And you can see meat's on there. It's just at the top. But I don't live in Mediterranean region. How can I even eat a Mediterranean diet, people ask. Well, a couple years ago, some really astute researchers broke down the Mediterranean diet into nine factors. And those nine factors have been validated in trials over and over and over again. So you can live in Mississippi or Michigan or Europe or anywhere and eat a Mediterranean diet. And those nine things are, and don't read these slides. uh, They're meant for a resource. But I'm just going to go through the nine points. The nine points is, do you eat more than nine or 11, if you're a man, ounces of vegetables a day? Yes, no. You get a point if you do. You get a point, zero points if you don't. Do you eat more than, I'll just say, two ounces of legumes a day? And if you don't know what a legume is, that's beans, peanut butter, chickpeas, lentils, uh, frozen beans, soybeans. Do you eat more than that? Yes, one point, no, zero points. Do you eat more than eight ounces of fruit or nuts a day? One point, no points. We'll talk about what the points mean. Do you eat less than seven ounces of dairy a day? Okay. Do you eat more than nine ounces of cereals or grains? So this is against the kind of low-carb craze that people push all the time. My patients tell me all the time, I'm going on a low-carb diet. I'm like, well, that could be really great. What do you mean by that? So we're talking about whole wheat, shredded wheat, brown rice, wheat pasta, quinoa. If you eat more than that, you get a point. Fish. Do you eat more than two four-ounce servings of fish in a week, especially fatty fish? Do you eat less than three and a half ounces of meat per day averaged over a week? Do you know how much that is? That's less than the size of your palm. If you eat more red meat than that in a day or meat in that in a day, you you don't get a point. If you eat less than that, you get a point. Do you drink between 5 and 25 grams of alcohol a day? If you're in that range for a female, you get a point. If you're below or above that, you get zero points. Okay? And so do you eat the right kinds of fats? And this is basically healthy fats, what we've talked about, plant-based fats. Or are you eating less healthy fats? And any unhealthy fat is something that usually is solid when it's at room temperature. That's just a simple way to think about it. So like lard, vegetable shortening, hydrogenated vegetable oils, and then you get a point and no points. 
So this is the handout I give to my patients. I tell them, just pick one area of this and let's work on one area at a time. Because these trials, so this was the stability trial that said for every one point that you get a yes to or that you can change. So let's say my patient starts out, they get a one. And they come back after a year and they have like, we have two more categories that we're actually eating that way now. For every point you decrease your 5%, it's a 5% risk reduction for cardiovascular disease for every point. This other study done in Greece said for every two points you increase uh, for this, if nine categories, if you can fix two categories, that's a 22% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. That's the same as taking a statin. That is the same as taking a statin. Two categories, eat some more beans, don't eat so much red meat, and you're, you could, you probably should take the statin too if you need it. But, uh, <laughs> And then this was just looking at the PREDIMED trial, really an amazing trial. It took people who are at already very high risk for cardiovascular disease because of obesity, smoking, or family history, and they broke them into three arms. Regular diet, a Mediterranean diet with lots of olive oil, or a Mediterranean diet with lots of nuts. And those two groups were equal they had a relative risk reduction, which you always got to be careful of, right? It's usually overstated a little bit. But it wasn't an increase of 30% of people who already were in the highest risk category for having a heart attack. So, um, and there are so many trials about studies about the Mediterranean diet because it tastes good, it's not restrictive, and people can follow it. So they took that same cohort and they looked at the diabetic patients. And in those two arms we talked about, 52% reduction in development of diabetes. So now we've reduced your risk of heart disease by 30%. We've reduced your risk of diabetes by 50% from eating a diet that relatively is tasty. And I mean, we can go on and on about Mediterranean studies. There are so many studies about this kind of diet. It's ridiculous. That's why U.S. News and World Report, when they rate their diets every year, has Mediterranean diet as one of the highest because it's not really a diet like you think about a diet. It's a lifestyle. So what about weight loss? So this is interesting. So they, a bunch of people were on a bunch of different kinds of diets to lose weight. If you can't read, blue is a low-carb diet, red is a low-fat diet, and yellow is a Mediterranean diet. So this is the time when the study was going on for two years. And then they just took it away, and then they just said, we'll just see you every year and measure your weight and stuff. And by out to 72 months or five years, you can see that the people who had adhered to a Mediterranean diet were the most likely to keep the weight off because it tastes good, it's not restrictive, etc. And there's a ridiculous number of trials. Here's a summary, an article that has a list of all of them. Okay, so we did the DASH diet, Mediterranean diet. Let's think about just plant-based diets. So um, yeah, it's really sad that I really do love steak. A six-ounce steak, 40 grams of protein, which we remember said the, the sweet spot is 20% of your calories in a day. But that has 12 grams of short-chain fatty acids, which are not good for you, whereas one cup of cooked lentils has 18 grams of protein with no fat. So you can see here some of the things. And so these are a lot of studies done comparing health-conscious non-vegetarians. That's the control group. And then vegetarian groups were the studied group. And so your risk of... Um, Cardiovascular disease was 30% lower if you ate eggs and uh, milk and were a vegetarian diet. And you can see the studies down there. I don't need to read numbers to you that there was reduced risk. Um, in the Adventist 2 trial, 
the um, hypertension was 75% lower in people who had a vegetarian diet and 55% lower than people who ate eggs and milk. And then all-cause mortality, it's lower as well. Not surprising. So before you go crucifying me that I'm some new age person advocating a plant-based diet, or, which I kind of am, <laughs> I, I want to show you one thing. So you eat probably 10 times as much protein as your grandparents ate. So if you look at this graph right here, this is consumption of meat in the world from 1960, 50 million tons of meat or probably 60 to 2010. I couldn't find a more up-to-date trial on this. But it's just the amounts. It's just staggering the growth in, I mean, China. Look at China on this graph. That is just enormous. Um, and so you think about India has kind of stayed pretty pretty constant. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not uh, kind of, and I don't think this is a religious thing. I, I'm just talking about the data. So, so maybe we just eat less, right? Meatless Monday, or if you haven't heard the word flexitarian, or some days you just decide you're not going to eat meat, just reducing the amount. All right, now to the exciting stuff. So when your patient's on a statin, on a beta blocker, on aspirin, on Plavix, is there any hope? And so we're going to look at three trials in a row here. Now, they're small trials, but this was 200 and 198 people. Have you ever seen the Forks Over Knives documentary uh, on Netflix? Uh, these are highlighted there if it's still on there. So 198 patients, 177 were able to adhere to this diet. Plant-based, no animal, whole foods, no processed foods. So of the 177 who completed, only one major event happened. Of the, 13 who, of the 21 who didn't complete it, 62% of them had some adverse cardiovascular event. So the, the difference between those two groups was huge. So this guy, Esselstein, is a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and he took a group of 25 patients who had had all of their coronaries so stented already there was no other coronary intervention that could be done. They couldn't be bypassed and they couldn't be stented anymore. And he did angiographic images on each one of these and then he put them all on that same diet. Plant-based, whole foods, no processed food diet, very, very low in any kind of animal fats at all. And this is an angiogram from just one of those patients. That is staggering to think about. You think, well, that's just one picture. And if you're not used to looking at angiograms, that's a really narrow coronary artery. And that's a very full-flowing coronary artery. But there have been other trials of this where they've actually shown angiographic plaque reduction uh, in disease from these types of diets. And this was the biggest one uh, done by Dean Ornish. This was published in JAMA back near 2000. And so it looked at the diameter of stenosis uh, of people with coronary disease. And the people who were the most adherent had almost... 7 to 8% reduction in change, percent reduction in change. Now, you think, well, that's not very much. Do you remember flow through a tube, right? Uh, it's to the fourth power, right? So you don't have to reduce the diameter of something very much to dramatically reduce flow. And then the other big trial that we just looked about were people who were on the borderline for having diabetes. They were broken into three groups, given metformin, told for a while to modify your lifestyle, or put on placebo, and you can see here that as much as I like metformin, and it's my number one drug for starting people on type 2 diabetics, it didn't perform nearly as well as doing these lifestyle modifications. And these lifestyle modifications in this trial were not very rigid. They were decreasing, increasing, that kind of knock, no banning of anything. 
So in conclusion, I think this is not rocket science, right? But it makes it's really hard to do that. But if we care about our own health and the health of our patients, and it is a stewardship issue, uh, just like we've been given the earth to tend and take care of, we've been given our bodies to tend and take care of as well. There's emerging incidents that uh, bad eating patterns may also be related to neurocognitive disorder, even like Alzheimer's and some other dementias. So if you're familiar with Andrew Weil, he does some great stuff on inflammatory diseases. About 15 years ago, my friends who were rheumatologists uh, would laugh at me when I started talking about this. And now one of the guys who actually laughed at me a couple years ago at a concert for our kids said, I can get 40% of my patients with RA better just from diet alone. Uh, and so it's starting to creep. And it's not just rheumatology that's starting to understand this. It's dermatology, psoriasis, and some of the inflammatory. All these inflammatory diseases can be modified by diet. So all these things have in common. This is what they all have in common, right? And we know this, uh, but it's so hard to live. So you think, well, I come from a big family. Everyone in my family has heart disease, or everyone in my family is obese, or everyone in my family has hypertension. So there's this whole field of epigenetics, if you're familiar with that. That means your, your genes don't def, defi, define you. And that, so there's a great study here where they took, I'll just show you here, the study in circulation, they took people who had 32 known obesity predisposing gene variants for, from, from family, okay? I'm sorry, I'm standing right in the way for you guys. And they had two hours of TV watching a day. You increased your obesity by 25%. Those same group of people, if they could just walk an hour a day, decreased their rates of obesity by 50%. You are not, your genes do not define you 100%. And then the last topic I'm going to talk about before we kind of start to slow down and close and have some reflection here. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. That's our gut. And, uh, and there's a whole lot going on in our gut that we are just now starting to understand. And I got really in the weeds on this, but I've deleted about 15 slides this morning, so you're really praising the Lord for that as well. <laughs> so, um, so depending on where you live in the world, so these are kind of genetic breakdowns and biotyping of different kinds of bacteria in our gut. Depending on where you live in the world and what you eat, the makeup of that biome of your gut bacteria vary dramatically, okay? And um, so that's a lot of things. You have 100 trillion microbial cells living in your body. You didn't know that you were packing all that today, did you? But what do they do? They, they do affect digestion of our food. They metabolize certain medications. They synthesize vitamins. They de- uh, detoxify carcinogens. They help keep the lining of our gut healthy, now, I'm telling you that after me mocking my uh, integrative medicine friends 20 years ago when they kept talking about leaky gut syndrome. But actually, leaky gut syndrome is not kind of a theory anymore. It's a true thing that the endothelial lining of our gut becomes damaged and lots of bad stuff escapes out of our gut that's not supposed to escape. And so, and it also, if you realize if you take care of typhoid or if you take care of other diseases, realize our gut has a lot to do with immunity. A ton of our immunity has to do with our gut and it protects against bad pathogens in our gut. So here is a really interesting trial to think about antibiotics, okay? So these are control lab rats on the left. This was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so they took the normal flora, the bacteria living in those um, rats, and they put them in other rats, and they stayed about the same. 
So then they took those that poop, really, from those rats, and they put it in germ-free mice, mice that had been raised in an environment with no germs at all, and they put that normal uh, microbiotic flora into those rats, and nothing happened. Okay? So then they took uh, people who had penicillin exposure, and these were after the rats were weaned, they were given penicillin, this is when the rats were, um, the mom was exposed to penicillin when the rats were nursing, and then it was throughout the weaning process. So these rats got penicillin after they were all done with breastfeeding. These rats' mothers got penicillin while they were being weaned. So they took the fecal material from these rats, this microbiotic flora, and they put it in other rats, and nothing happened. They took the bacteria from these rats, and they put it in rats, and they increased in obesity and fat percentage dramatically compared to these rats. So they thought, well, that's weird. So then they took the fecal material from these rats and they put it back in those same germ-free mice. And these rats got really fat. And this is actually, there is some increasing evidence about maternal exposure of antibiotics during pregnancy and obesity in kids. Uh, it's not 100%. It's association-level stuff. So I'm not touting that, but this has been reproduced in rats over and over again. So it has something to do, our gut bacteria has something to do with how our body handles fat and handles protein. And so if you have an altered gut microbiota, so that means if you're not eating prebiotics, things that you're, the stuff that you can't digest, or, or probiotics, you know, like uh, fermented foods, like, you know, yogurt and um, What's that terrible stuff that I hate to eat, honey? Sauerkraut, yeah. <laughs> um, and if those things actually have those healthy bacteria in them. Uh, but if you, if you have that altered gut microbia, you have marked increases in fa- uh, short-chain fatty acids. You have decreased uh, things called a fasting-induced AF. It actually has to do with how you do or do not store fat. Increased permeability of your gut. And then decreased AMPK is like the AMP uh, kinase, the thing that helps with energy uh, cycles in our body. But when you take those people who have damaged gut and you put them on a diet that's heavy in prebiotics, heavy in probiotics, not a lot of processed foods, not a lot of sugar, that can heal. And then what starts to happen is you start increasing peptide YY, that that's what part of that tells you that you're full. Ghrelin. That's one of those things that tells you that you're hungry. That goes down when your gut bacteria are healthy. And then the last is GLP-1. What are some of the new diabetic classes of drugs we're giving? They fight that, right? And so that actually has to do with obesity and weight gain. GLP-1 inhibitors actually cause weight loss. And so that's a you know common drugs that we use now for diabetes. And so this is a huge part of data. There's still a lot of speculation on how this happens. Nobody really has this figured out exactly, uh, but we do know that there are some chemicals in our body that are increased if we eat a lot of plant protein and plant fats that our gut makes a lot of trimethylamine and our liver turns trimethylamine into trimethylamine oxide and higher levels of trimethylamine oxide are not causative, but they are associated with more plaque formation in our arteries because of inflammation. So our gut matters. Okay. So, now we're going to take a deep breath. <laughs> Woo! I'll take a deep breath. So, I have a quick question. 
How many of this, how much of this was revelatory? Probably not a lot. I see some heads nodding. Um, and so, you know, sometimes when I give this talk, people come up and ask me, okay, what do you think about lectin-free diets? Or people come up to me and say, what do you think about, you know, uh, giving selenium? Uh, and I just think, man, we are like, we're talking about like meta issues and we're, you're talking about like brush strokes on the painting. And, and I think if you can't do the basic things, uh, getting into the weeds and spending a million dollars a year on supplements uh, is, is not going to do what we want it to do. So, so there's not a ton new here. I think probably the biggest thing that I, when I share this kind of material with people is the revelation about diet soda is one of the biggest things, I think. But for so much of us, knowledge is not the problem. Why is this hard? How many of you drove here? How many of you stopped to eat on the way here? How many of you had a very simple time finding a diet or something to eat on the way here that would fit with what we've just talked about? Almost impossible, right? And it is just increasingly hard uh, to find that. Stewardship without idolatry, I just want to highlight that, right? We can get so into this and idolize our bodies and the health of our bodies and what we're putting into our bodies. We forget that we are creatures meant to be in community with one another. And if, even if I, I'm serious about this, and, and I kind of am, I don't. if I go to someone's house and they're feeding me something or I'm going to church, we're going to eat together and we're going to eat with what people have. That's important. Uh, breaking bread with the body. But then starting to think about this in the developing world, I mean, the resources to be able to counter this, it just seems almost impossible to me. And, and we just see type 2 diabetes, very soon India will become the number one country in the world of type 2 diabetes mellitus prevalence. And, I mean, that is just a number that I think about rural India that I, it makes me just so much cry to think about. Because there are not the better classes of drugs there. And there are not dialysis units to take care of people there. And there are not cath labs all over the place. I mean, certainly I would get a cath in Delhi, no problem. But I'm talking about rural, agricultural, India, China. Uh, and I'm, I don't have as much experience in the South, in, in Africa. So I, I just want to stop for a second and just ask real quickly, for those of you working or have worked in, in the developing world, what have your, been your experiences with this been? Yes. I think there's just been a huge lack of education on what is considered healthy. Like I see in Cambodia and in India, um, they have a lot of natural resources, but they won't typically go to it just because the other food is more readily available for eating. And yeah. Yeah. A huge problem with this, and that's in many places in Africa, fruit is a cash crop, right? Do you know that one mango, one mango has enough vitamin A in it to prevent kids from getting eye, eye disease uh, from, help me out here, I just had a mind blank. Yeah, when they get measles, right, your vitamin A levels get depleted and then they get, uh, you know, the, the blinding effects on the cornea and on the, one mango a year is enough to prevent kids from that happening. One mango a year. 
uh, but nobody eats the mango right because they are so much more valuable to sell. In other parts of Africa where there's protein malnutrition, peanuts are the cash crop, tremendous legume, healthy fats, but they're being sold off and then people eat second or high, less quality food. Right? So those are big problems uh, in the developing world where many of us have worked. I love Michael Pollan. He brings a lot of perspective to this. I'll close with his three points. Eat real food. By that he means not processed food. Mostly plants, not too much. That's pretty simple. Okay, so I have a few minutes for questions, uh, but I am not, uh, I'll do what I can. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Is, it, is it better to do supplements or obviously just finding foods within that? How does that compare? Yeah. So I think our hype in this, it's just like let's let's kill our gut with tons of sugar and processed foods and let's try to make that all better by taking a pill prebiotic. Actually, the most if, if people stopped eating added sugar and stopped eating processed foods, most of this would take care of itself. Uh, and then we think about what are prebiotics. Those are things like the, the, the fibrous, fi- the kind of fiber that you can't digest, the non-soluble fiber. And so, you know, things like celery and broccoli and those kind of things. Uh, that's what those bacteria love to munch on in there. Uh, and so uh, that's what helps them to be healthy and the right populations of that to be healthy. And they will change based on, on what you eat. So I, I'm always an advocate of doing the basic things right, and then you're probably not going to need the pills. I mean, I think for how many years of human history, people lived without heart disease or diabetes, and there are no probiotic pills for them to take. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that that's true. And actually, that's true of most supplements. So, you know, the omega-3 fatty acid supplements, you know, there, there is very little evidence. There is some evidence, but there is very little evidence that if you can, that they are as effective as eating fatty fish. So we knew that eating fatty fish, high in omega-3 fatty acids, reduces your risk of heart disease. So let's now start taking omega-3. We, we do that so well. Just eat the fish. Uh, and there, there actually was a trial that came out this week that looked at the, looking at fatty acids may actually, not, may actually have some adverse effects that we're just starting to discover. So I don't know that for sure, but I have 10 minutes left. Yes? When you think of non-diabetics taking low-dose metformin, they say that it yeah. So that this study that I showed you right here were in pre-diabetics. And so, yeah, metformin was better than nothing. That's the yellow line. You probably can't see that yellow line very good, but it's kind of right in the middle of the green and the red. But um, we're always trying to advocate our patients to do things well. There is nothing in my professional career that makes me more happy than taking a diabetic hypertensive off their medicine. It is so rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Because they cost, and they're not always good for you. I'm a fan of metformin, though. It is my go-to drug for diabetes because I think the data is overwhelming that shows even if you don't lower your blood sugar with it, even if your A1C doesn't change, you have lower mortality uh, being on metformin than any other thing. And insulin is not that way. Insulin is not good for you. And so that's why all these other options first, SGLP2 inhibitors and the GLP1 inhibitors, are better for you than, than insulin is. Yes? I mean, that's pretty simple. Um, um, again, knowledge is not the hard part of this for me. 
I, I, I talk about this. And six months ago when I was talking about this, I was at my highest weight ever and my BMI was 33. Uh, because it's a spiritual problem for me. And when I get stressed out, my first place to walk is in the kitchen. So there are some great resources. Um, if you could just look, I mean, I think the, if you just look up nine-point Mediterranean diet, some of those charts in there, that chart that I showed you is available uh, on the Internet easily through Google. You put nine points for a Mediterranean diet. That's very simple. Vegetables, whole grains, less dairy, less red meat, more fish. Uh, and so to me, that's about as simple as it gets. And that handout is what we go over with our patients over and over. That's the only thing I give to my patients about this. And then, um, you know, Michael Pollan's uh, stuff here at the end is, is pretty good, too. Processed food is so bad. Yeah. Is the point to be taken from avoiding diet drinks, the artificial sweeteners, rather than the soda itself? Well, I mean, that study uh, that was done looking at 10 European countries showed increased mortality from soda intake in general. Like even, uh, what is it, seltzer water? I, no, seltzer water, I don't believe. Uh, yeah. There is some interesting stuff about that carbonation of what that carbonation does in our gut, and that carbonation might screw up our satiety hormones a little bit, uh, but that's not that's not in science. That's or that's early kind of speculative or associations, uh, but that carbonation actually might be part of the problem of soda that our stomachs get distended, and then the stomach lining is what does the leptin and ghrelin, those things that regulate our appetites. So the mechanism of that is not known, uh, although the artificial sweeteners, I think the, the two proposed mechanisms that seem to have the most sense to me have to do with our gut microflora, that, that those artificial sweeteners are somehow toxic or not good to the right kind of flora in our gut. And the other part of it is that the artificial sweeteners seem to mess with satiety. Uh, and so... We're starting to realize so much about hunger and what are things that make us hungry and what are things that don't make us hungry. And I've seen maps of all the chemicals that in, it just looks like a rat's nest. I mean, it is very complicated. Uh, but it does, there is no doubt that people who, that in the nurses' trial, I didn't put it up there, nurses who drank diet soda more were more likely to be obese. There is something it does to our appetites, which is really sad because. Some of my friends who struggle the most with obesity are drinking a gallon of diet soda a day. Yeah. Yes? Any thoughts on gluten-free? Yeah, so gluten. Oof, I was hoping someone wasn't going to ask me that. <laughs> I think if you have gluten sensitivity, you should be gluten-free. I think if we stopped eating so much processed white flour, we would not have the problems that we have. There's a lot of stuff, too, that's really interesting to me. And, again, I'm not an expert on this. But I've had friends who are gluten-free who go to Europe and can eat bread in Europe and do not have problems. And so there's some, it's the growth, maybe, I, all my family comes from a farming background, so be careful, maybe it's from genetically modified wheat. I don't think we know 100%. But I just think, yeah, whole wheat things uh, are so good for us. And just think those are one of the nine points in the Mediterranean diet where whole grain cereals and wheat and whole grain, whole grains and so I think they've been unfairly demonized. Uh, and I think all the people who go on these gluten-free diets get better. Why are they getting better? Because they're avoiding processed carbohydrates. Uh, it's just a correlative thing, not necessarily a causative thing. 
There are certainly people I know who have celiac disease. I'm not downplaying that at all. Yeah. All right. Everybody go ready to eat some Jimmy John's. (laughs) All right. Yes. If you come up to me and give me your email address, I'll email them to you. Okay. I might get a line here. Honey, you may need to help me out. Okay. Hey, one, one thing I will... Um, yeah, never mind. 